0: Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty
1: podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to the Felony Friday show. This is a weekly show on the Lions of Liberty podcast. During the show, we focus every week on injustices in the broken criminal justice system with a new show published every single Friday. Today we have another great show, but before we get started and before I introduce my co-host for today, I want to remind our listeners where they can find the show notes. You can find them at lionsofliberty.com slash FF9. We're going to talk about a couple of different stories, a couple of different felonies, and I will link to all of those stories at lionsofliberty.com slash FF9. Now we've dabbled in two different formats for the show. We've had a, an interview format where I've talked to some leaders in the criminal justice movement, like Attorney, podcaster, Joseph Bolero Jr., activist, Regina Huffnagel, author, Jeffrey Tucker, author and podcaster, Michael Santos, and radio host and documentary filmmaker, John Ziegler. Now, we've also had a little more of a conversational format to the show where I've had on Mark Clare in the past, uh, Lions of Liberty co-founder, also had on Howie Snowden. So this show today is going to be more of that conversational format where we're going to talk about some felonies trending in the news or some criminal justice issues trending in the news. So now I'm gonna introduce my guest for today. I'm really excited for my guest. It's his first time on the Felony Friday podcast. He is our resident Rand Paul analyst. He's also a comedian and he's also a co-founder of Lines of Liberty. And he used to work at Hooters in college. Little known fact there. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brian McWilliams. That's one hell of
0: an intro. You missed something though. I also used to work at a place called Sesame Place as an actor, and one time walked around
1: as Big Bird. That does not surprise me at all, but that's sort of a... uh, I guess Big Bird should be tall. What what are you, 6'5"? Yeah, I'm like like
0: 6'3", and you had to be a certain height to do it. And uh, the guy got sick, and they were like, do you want to be Big Bird? I was like, of course. Who doesn't rule this park? And then uh, I ended up just being really hot and accidentally kicking a kid in the stomach. (laughs) It was... (laughs) I I literally... They never asked again. It was one and done for me. Yeah, so you,
1: you got fired. You got one shot at Big Bird and you failed. But They sent me back to do my uh, spooky,
0: kooky Castle Magic show, which was what my regular gig was there.
1: Okay, I'm not going to go any farther down that Man of many so talents. A, man of man many talents. Maybe on another show. Maybe yeah. another show. I'm excited to be here as
0: well, though. Uh, thank you for having me on Felony Friday. I've been pumped. I'm sure people were wildly anticipating my first appearance. <laughs>
1: I'm sure they were. I've been getting tons of emails asking, when's Brian going to come on the show? When are you going to get Brian on? So I had to appease the audience, have you on. Brian, before we get started talking about some felonies here, um, just a real general question. What in criminal justice reform, you know, what topic in criminal justice reform are you most passionate about? Would you say not to put you on the spot? But, you know, there's a lot of injustice out there. Is there any particular thing, drug war, something like that, that, that you're really passionate about? Well, yeah, you nailed
0: it. I mean, for me, the drug war is definitely going to be the top thing because it just impacts so many different aspects of criminal law and how people were sentenced and how. I mean, nothing ruins more people's lives than the drug war. Nothing It goes after nonviolent criminals like the drug war and ruins their lives. So that one is definitely top for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's no uh, surprise that almost every single show, we uh, end up talking about the war on drugs. Yeah, it's hard
0: to avoid it. The show will probably be no different. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it won't. Well, like I said, it's, it's just, it's such a prevalent theme in society going forward, because you hear about it every day. You see some drug charges or people are pulled over because of drug charges and then charges something else. It's like and then they go to jail for, you know, the mandatory sentencing is still in play from the Clinton era. You know, there's nothing done quite to roll all that back yet. And then you get into the whole thing. Like I wrote years ago about how the prison system is basically dependent on the war on drugs. This whole that's another aspect of justice reform in, in a way is these private prisons where people are sent to the private prisons because they're required essentially to have a certain quota met, which can be like up to 100 percent in some of the prisons in my home state of California right now. So if, without the drug war, how are they ever going to complete those quotas? They're going to end up paying millions of dollars to these private prisons. So there's a lot of reasons that people want the drug war to stay in place, none of which make any sense.
1: Yeah, it's a uh Just perpetuating a system, the uh, prison industrial complex, as you were talking about. There are some cracks, you know, finally some cracks forming in the foundation of that. As I was just in in Denver this past week on a ski trip. And obviously, as everyone knows, Denver, they've legalized marijuana. So at least there's not people there being arrested for, you know, ingesting some marijuana, smoking some marijuana or selling marijuana outside of the increments that are allowable. Mm. So uh, we'll talk about the drug war a little more later in the show. The first topic we have for today is actually one that you sent to me, Brian, and the title of the article is Upstate New York Students Who Claimed Hate Crime Attack Now Face Criminal Charges of Their Own. So this occurred, as I said, in upstate New York at the State University of New York at Albany. So there were three students who originally claimed that they were victims of a hate crime, and now they're being accused of fabricating this attack. The uh, It's actually three women. And they originally claimed to be attacked by a group of white men. Now, this confrontation occurred on a bus July 30th. The university police department did a long investigation, three-week-long investigation into this case here. And they interviewed other passengers. There were a bunch of cameras they could look at. And after going through all that, they figured out that it was actually the other way around. It was the three women that instigated the attack and the three women that were yelling, racial slurs at the onlookers. So now these three women are facing charges of their own. And this comes immediately after there was a huge, this was a pretty big story. And at this university, there was a big uh, show of support, a big rally for these three students that had claimed that they had been victims of a hate crime. So now the charges in this case, there's charges of assault in the third degree, falsely reporting an incident in the third degree, attempted assault in the third degree, and attempted criminal mischief in the fourth degree. Before I ask you a couple questions here, Brian, one quote that I thought was pretty telling from the uh, police chief there, the university police chief, Frank Wiley, he was talking about the case and he said, what happened on the bus was not a hate crime. The only person we heard uttering racial epithets was one of the defendants. So I guess my first question for you, Brian, is how can they think it's a hate crime in the start, if it's, you know, white people yelling racial slurs at these three black women, but it's not a hate crime if it's the other way around with these three black women yelling uh, racial epithets at the uh, the white people on the bus. Any thoughts on that? I was thinking the exact same thing
0: reading the story. Just I was reading it over again today and I was watching the CNN video of it in which one of the, you know, the main accuser uh, was basically weeping crocodile tears on stage. And she said, how could this happen? We must stand together. But yeah, she was, you know, I, I'm not sure if it was she, uh, she was the one that actually said the racial epithet. But she said, you know, called somebody a white bee. I'm not sure if this uh, show ever gets marked explicit, so I won't complete it. But you know where what the rest of the word is. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't understand how that comes into play either. It, it's something where... You know, especially as the U.S. starts to become less and less whites as the majority, which has already taken place in California. Whites are already in the minority again. I don't see how they can now apply it to one person and not the other one, where clearly this is, you know, if not racially motivated on its face, they're using these racial epithets. And there's, you know, I mean, if you flip the script on that, you know, at any time someone uses any sort of racial word, they'll say, okay, that's evidence of a hate crime. So, yeah, I don't understand how it could possibly be ignored as a hate crime or how this guy could say, oh, no, it's not a hate crime. It's not just generic assault. It's, it's crazy.
1: Yeah. When you look at uh, the actual hate crime law in the state of New York, and I'm assuming they're pretty much the same throughout the country, there's a qualification for what a hate crime is. And what they talk about it in the one part of the law is it's a person intentionally committing an act or acts constituting the offense against whom the offense is committed or intended to be committed in whole or in substantial part because of a belief or perception regarding race, color, national origin, ancestry, gender, religion, religious practice, age, disability, sexual orientation, regardless of whether the belief or perception is correct. So it's just based on the belief. So it leaves a lot of wiggle room, I would think, for You know, the police officers or the judge or or the jury look when they're looking at a case like this to really decide what a hate crime is. And I guess my biggest thing with hate crimes is the biggest problem I have is it's not equality under the law. And I mean, you you can argue that it's not even um, you're not violating someone's rights most of the time. Now, if the hate crime is followed up by an assault or a damaging of someone's property, of course, then there's you know, that's you're harming someone else. Then you should be prosecuted for that. But that's my main problem that I have with hate crimes.
0: Well, I've got a couple of issues with it, several, actually. And one I'll address, you know, I mentioned that this became a huge thing. And you mentioned in the opening, this became a huge thing where there was rallies around it and there was a public vigil and all this stuff. Now, of course, and this is from an assault that these girls had started. So the hate crime or the allegation of hate crime has become a get out of jail free card in a way, because even if somebody had, you know, had started the assault or it's their fault, they could say, oh, well, I'm black. It was a hate crime and everybody immediately is on that person's side, which, as you said, is unfair. It's not equal because a white person can't do that. Now, additionally, like you said, you know, going and saying, okay, because you did this to a minority, it is now a hate crime, to me, is absurd. You can't necessarily prove, even if somebody's throwing out racial slurs, that doesn't mean that the argument or the fight or the action was necessarily caused because of race or because of sex identity or because of anything of gender. It could just be an argument. It could be that somebody bumps somebody else and they get into a fight, but that becomes hate crime legislation because people are actively looking for it or somebody could allege, oh, well, you know what? He called me the N-word. Now, whether or not that happened, who knows? But that allegation now makes it a hate crime, and that hate crime comes with years additional penalty if that person's found guilty. So they have committed the same crime as somebody else. Let's say somebody finds somebody in the street, he knocks them out and takes his wallet. Okay, that's white on white, let's say. Somebody else, a black guy, gets knocked out by a white guy. And let's say he's got a head of hair like mine. He's, he's shaved head on top. Let's make a double bad for this guy. So he knocks out somebody and it's the exact same crime, However, one becomes a hate crime just because of the color of the victim's skin. Never mind that it's the exact same crime. And it, in my opinion, it should be punished in the exact same fashion. I don't think that there should be legislation in place that says because this was your reason, now you get five more years in jail.
1: I agree. And on top of that, I really don't think that hate crime laws actually do anything to protect minorities, and I think it's immoral, as I was saying, equality under the law. You could have, you know, a guy with two neighbors, a, a white guy with a, a black neighbor and a white neighbor, and he goes out and gets drunk one night and he spray paints on each garage on, on both sides. I hate you. Mm-hmm. And the guy's gonna be charged for a hate crime for spray painting I hate you is gonna have more harsher penalties for spray painting I hate you on the black person's black neighbor's garage than the the white neighbor's garage. Exactly. It doesn't make Any sense at all. Doesn't make any sense at all. And does not protect minorities at all. No, and as we know, we all hate our neighbors.
0: So I mean how many times let he who throws the first stone. How many times have I spray painted things on my neighbors' front doors? That's why I use that example. I do it almost (laughs) every weekend. Sometimes with feces, yeah, it's whatever's (laughs) handy. No, <laughs> no. I run out of paint? <laughs> Halfway through. No, exactly right. It's, it's just crazy to think about. And, you know, I actually looked up just to see the, you know, you mentioned, does hate crime legislation work? Now, statistically, since 1996, which was, I guess, you know, the height of hate crimes, it's been dropping. Now, meanwhile, these are also hate crimes make up a tiny fraction of the overall crimes committed. So it's, you were talking about a very minuscule thing that are actually classified as hate crimes to begin with. But, The stats say that hate crimes have dropped. Now, that, in my opinion, has nothing to do with legislation because it's not like this crazy drop where, oh, as soon as the legislation was put into place the next day, everybody went, you know what, I'm not going to punch that guy in a blind, drunken rage because, hey, hate crime now. No, they dropped. But you looked at things like social media. You looked at things like a wider acceptance between differences between culture and race and the adoption of that as generations change. I mean, 1996 is a hell of a long time ago now, like 20 years ago.
1: That's ridiculous. And
0: a lot could happen in 20 years. (laughs) It's sad to think about, isn't it? Uh, But a lot could happen in 20 years because you double that, you know, you go back a few more decades and that was when you actually had, you you know, schools being put together. So you look at just the natural progression of time. I don't think hate crime legislation does anything at all. It's just a natural move where people are getting more acculturated because of social media, because of the interaction with people, where there's just less emphasis on this. And uh, yeah, I think you should take it off the books.
1: I agree. Take it right off the books. All right, let's move on to our next story here. We're going to keep moving, try to keep these shows to a tight half hour. So this is about, uh, this is in Texas, a Texas town actually got rid of their public police department and hired a private security group called SEAL Security. Now, since they've hired SEAL Security Solutions, um, this is in Sharpstown, Texas, crime has reportedly dropped by 61% over a 20-month-long period. That's a huge drop. In addition to uh, this decrease in crime, there's been a apparent increase in efficiency as well. As this private firm is reporting that they've saved taxpayers roughly $200,000 each year. So 20 months, you're talking roughly about $400,000. So one of the changes they made is they're using what's called directed patrols. Now, what this means is instead of just you know sending a bunch of officers out in cars and saying, "Hey, go patrol the streets." They actually look at where crime is occurring um, in certain areas, in certain neighborhoods, and they send patrols directly to those areas. And they'll you know, analyze their data over time, over the months. And as crime moves, they'll move their patrols around. Amazing idea. I know it's kind of amazing that our public police departments aren't already doing this, but I don't think most of them are.
0: When you look at the bloated overheads because of crazy high salaries for long tenured public servants where, you know, these officers, somebody's like 150, 250, these massive amounts of money for staying in the position as long as they do, which then the budget can't afford to hire more patrol officers and put them on the street. When you think about this business model as a private security company taking over, you probably don't have more than one guy running and he might not even be there. So you've got probably lower paid employees, at least compared to these chief, you know, police chiefs that have been in, in play for 35 years and somewhere that are able to hire people You know, constantly. There might be more turnover in this. You could hire more people because there's more qualified individuals that aren't going through all the, the uh, you know state-managed trading for these public police forces, but also I would be willing to bet that they don't have the insane pensions to pay that the state police necessarily do or city police have. They come in part and parcel with a lot of the contracts that are uh, going out to these guys.
1: Yeah, it's actually a little bit surprising, maybe, that the savings isn't bigger. Well, maybe they're a really small town, though. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't have the numbers on the size of this town, but imagine if you implement something like this in even a moderately sized town or if you're in a big city, I mean, you could have huge savings. I mean, there's there's also risks that go along with it. We can get into that as well. Just because you privatize something doesn't automatically mean it's just all candy and flowers and I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but there's certain problems that could come along with privatization as well. One thing I did want to talk about is the SEAL officer's. Said so something that does kind of encourage this productivity and this efficiency is they don't have the same job protection, they don't have the same job security. And as you were talking about with you know, with the pension plans, you know, these police officers, after they work for 10, 15, 20 years, they're able to retire. And after they work for just a couple of years, it's almost impossible to fire them. We always hear these stories see these stories about police officers committing atrocious acts and they're just put on paid administrative leave and then they're normally not charged for you know their crimes if they harm someone or if they kill someone even so these seal officers don't have that same security so they have to be on their toes and they have to be accountable to the people they're actually serving so I think that's almost a, a bigger deal than the cost savings in my mind yeah what do you think of that oh, totally no I totally
0: agree. I was thinking, and you know, I wonder. Yeah, so, you know, you've got this private uh, police force in play now. When it comes to prosecuting these people, I would bet that they're doubly going to be careful and crossing all their t's and making sure they're not shooting uh, innocent black children that happen to be running around at, at night, like in uh, Ohio, favorite pastime. Because should they get caught doing something wrong, should they get you know found dealing drugs or doing something inappropriate? I would bet that the state is going to go out of their way to prosecute these people because knowing that they are a private police force now, I'm sure the state wouldn't be too happy about that, that they're pushing, you know, city police out of work and all this other stuff in in order to go private. And what do you think about that? Do you think that would come into play at all?
1: Yeah, well, I think definitely at the beginning, you know, if this does catch on and I, I think they've done similar things in Georgia, I forget the name of the town and I'm sure there's other towns that have done a similar thing. But yeah, as they're suddenly popping up, you know, all over the place, I'm sure that you know they're going against the grain. I'm sure the states will obviously, you know, back their police unions, and uh, that's job loss for police unions, so they don't want that. So that's something. They'll have to deal with as this does get more popular, which I think it will get more popular for what you talked about earlier, Brian, with uh, having to pay these pension plans, these small towns, even big cities. I know I I live in Pittsburgh right now, and their uh, public pension plan in the city is something like – I'm just going to make up a number. It's probably pretty close. It's like 15% funded. Mm -hmm. So it's just – yeah, this this is something that is unsustainable and cannot go on. Now, one thing I did want to touch on though, as I alluded to earlier, just because you privatize something – Just doesn't make it great. Doesn't make all the problems go away. I think probably a bigger problem we have with police and with uh, security in the United States is the the terrible amount of laws we have, as we talked about earlier in the show, drug laws, until the people come around and start to understand the immorality of these drug laws of locking a nonviolent person in a cage for a plant they consume, or even if they're consuming, you know, cocaine or marijuana, it's not uh, cocaine or heroin or uh, crystal meth. It's not helping the situation to arrest them and throw them in jail. Um, if someone truly does have a problem, they need help. They don't need to be locked away in a cage like an animal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know what else <laughs> to say to that. <laughs> yeah, i was trying to think of. Do I have any counterpoint to make? No, not really. <laughs> No, I agree with everything I say. Yeah, I'll have you back on the show every time. I know. I agree. I agree completely. You know, one thing we were talking about legislation in play, this is a completely veering off topic a little bit, but do you think there's going to be added legislation put into play to deal with private police forces if they come more popular?
1: That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. You know, like, are they going to try to
0: regulate the hell out of them? <laughs> From the federal
1: level, maybe? That's certainly a possibility. Yeah, federal or state level even, you know, because I could see
0: them trying to, Again, I maybe I'm coming down too hard on uh, my mistrust of uh, government, but I can just see it like everything that seems to pop up. Look at Uber and Lyft and all the issues that they've been having from all these unions coming after them and you now the regulations put in place in various cities that are banning the use of those. So I wonder if on a state level, the pressure from policemen's unions And, you know, on a federal level and a local level would force politicians to say, oh, we got to we got to protect our police. You know, that's a big funding block, I'm sure, and a big voting block. So I would be curious to see if that's going to start happening.
1: That's a good thought. I have no idea what the legislation would be, something to maybe impact their funding in in some way or I'm not even sure which direction they'll go. Yeah, like the lines of training or background
0: just just like they did with the Uber.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to go way off topic, but the thing with Uber and Lyft is, you know, they broke down the barriers to get in the industry, in the taxi industry, the transportation industry, and they built them right back up. So if I wanted to go out and start a, you know, a competing company, I couldn't even compete with Uber right now if I wanted to. So anyway, we're getting off topic. We're getting off topic. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Let's keep it on felonies. <laughs> That's what we do best here at Lines of Liberty. Just, just a veer right off topic. So next <laughs> up, we have a, uh, you know, I don't play this on every episode. We don't play this game. Um, When I do have been doing my interviews, we haven't been playing this game. And I've got a little bit of flack in our Lines of Liberty forum on Facebook. Some people saying, hey, John, you know, what happened to playing? Is this a crime? And should anyone do time? So we're going to play it this week. We have Brian here and it's his first time doing uh, this new game show. So the first topic we're going to talk about, I'm going to do a little intro, talk about the topic, and then Brian's going to say if he thinks it's a crime and if anyone should do time. So this story just jumped out to me. I forget where I saw it. It might have been over a week ago. It's a meteorologist in Kentucky and this meteorologist's husband who were arrested for cultivating marijuana plants and on weapons charges. Meteorologist's name is Tori Shaw, and uh, she was arrested on marijuana charges by the Kentucky State Police. Her husband's name Tyler Smoyer, I guess they have different names since she was known as a meteorologist already, didn't want to change her name, nothing wrong with that. They were arrested on uh, charges of firearm enhancement and cultivating five or more marijuana plants and also possessing additional marijuana and additional drug paraphernalia. Now, the Kentucky State Police, they found the five marijuana plants, six long guns, two pistols, two silencers, eight storage boxes, ammunition, a tactical vest, and multiple items used to grow marijuana. So they had a pretty significant operation going here. I don't have, unfortunately, what the charges are, but I'm thinking based on the firearm enhancement charge alone and being a Kentucky, I know Kentucky's strict on moonshine. They got to be strict on marijuana. It's probably a felony charge. So Brian, based on what you know from this, It's looking like these two are going to do some time. First of all, do you think it's a crime? And should they do any time?
0: I kind of wish I knew what they did to the guns to get the, you know, the enhancement charge. So I wonder if there's some sort of modification they made that really made them, you know, do they turn them into automatics? I doubt it.
1: Could have been the two silencers. I know you have to have in some states a special permit to use a silencer. They could be referring to the enhancement there, possibly.
0: Yeah, maybe then.
1: Uh, I'm gonna
0: say, from my personal point of view, no, not a crime. These people aren't doing it. You know, it doesn't look like there was an operation to distribute that I can see here. It looks like they were just growing them to use in their own private home. If they happen to have guns, if they have two guns that they're using to protect themselves, I don't know why they have silencers. Maybe to sneak around and play games with each other. That's fine. The long rifles, fine. They like to hunt. It's Kentucky, so I say not a crime. And I do not think that they should do time.
1: Well, I I gotta say I agree with you. I'm kind of picturing this as being out in on the country somewhere with you know nobody around. Maybe they're they're having the guns to protect themselves from intruders. I'm not sure, but you know one way this could be handled that we've talked about before is you know when we talk about the Second Amendment, when we talk about the right to have firearms, also with marijuana plants or or drugs of any kind, a lot of this could be handled better in a city state type community type environment, like an HOA environment. So if these two indeed are out in the middle of nowhere and they only have a couple neighbors around them, as long as their neighbors are fine with them, you know, growing marijuana and uh, they don't, you know, mind you know, all these guns they have, their neighbors probably could have a similar situation I see no problem with it. So I think that's the better way to handle regulating um, firearms and, and guns, firearms, and uh, drugs is on a community level. None of this uh, federal or state garbage.
0: Yeah, I'd say more the yeah. Obviously the yeah the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment stuff. I'd say that one for me, regardless of the community you're in, I sh- I think you should be able to defend yourself. But yeah, agreed completely then, especially on the drug stuff. Where if you make a community that says yes, we we don't mind drugs, go ahead, grow it, cultivate it, barter it with your neighbors, they should be able to do that.
1: Just to clarify there for a second, talking about communities and um, using like a a city-state formula, you know, you shouldn't be able to tell someone or force someone to take their gun away, take away their ability to defend themselves. But if someone wants to voluntarily give up their right to own a gun, to give up their right to own a firearm and defend themselves, and then choose to live with other people in a neighborhood that's gun-free – you know, then God bless them. Go let, let them do that. That's, I guess that's basically what I was sh- trying to show that scenario there. I got you. Uh,
0: like in uh, tombstone where people have to check their firearms in order to use the whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I would probably give up my gun in that case. All right, agreed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, that's a good place to move on to our next story. Here, <laughs> This is a pretty weird story. So that's good we had a, that weird transition. <laughs> this is uh, an ex-Michigan lawmaker who is facing felony charges for an affair that they had. The Michigan lawmaker's name is Todd Courser. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. And he resigned in September after he and a fellow state rep, Cindy Gamrat, uh, allegedly they attempted to cover up an affair with a pretty freaking bizarre story about male prostitution and drugs. Um, so let's get into the details of this a little bit. The affair actually became public last August when a former aide of Courser released some audio recordings where Courser, the state rep, was asking this aide to help you know, cover this up by sending a bizarre email where the state rep would be accusing himself of having sex with male prostitutes and doing drugs in order to cover up this affair with this uh, female rep, uh, Cindy Gamrat. So that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense right there what his thought process was. But so he orchestrates this cover-up And then he receives an anonymous text message from someone threatened to expose the affair if he doesn't resign. And it turns out the anonymous text message is coming from the husband of the rep that he was having the affair with. So a House investigation determined that both state representatives engaged in deceptive, deceitful and outright dishonest conduct. And the investigation accused the two of directing their staff to facilitate the affair, which they claim blurred the lines between um, official and political work, between, you know, um, personal and official work. So, like I said, they're facing charges. The charges they're facing, three charges of misconduct while in office, one count of perjury, and the female rep is facing uh, two counts of misconduct in office. So, I guess the question here, is this a crime and should anyone do time is a a little bit different. I mean, so, if they weren't state reps, you know, if they're just having an affair, then is there really a crime here? But in this instance, they're state reps. You know, they're using government money, state money, in order to conduct their business and paying their aides to help cover up an affair. So, with that in mind, is this a crime, and should they do time?
0: Well, you hit the nail on the head. You know, when I first read this story, I was like, "This
1: is ridiculous.
0: This is such a stupid thing to go and try to prosecute." Because, you know, if these people want to mess around, fine, it's not illegal to concoct some, you know, to make up a horrible, idiotic story about yourself to try to cover it up. I mean, I guess that's the perjury part. But the key to it is that they had their aides agree to, you know, to organize or force their aides to set up the romantic rendezvous and, I guess, rent the seedy motels they made out and all that good stuff. So with that in mind, I mean, it's hard to get around it. It's a ridiculous thing for sure. But, hey, that is public money that you're using and you're using it inappropriately. So I say, yes, it is a crime. Uh, Should they do time for it? I would say a fine. I don't know if they necessarily should go to jail for something along these lines. I don't think that's worth taking someone's actual freedom away for.
1: Yeah, because the the maximum sentence here for misconduct charges, this is a felony. So the maximum sentence is five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. So you would say leave off the prison time and maybe a little more than $10,000. I don't know, yeah. you pay back for the resources they, they abused. Yeah, precisely,
0: exactly right. Pay back the money that you wasted that was the taxpayers. And it, you know, I'm actually shocked that it's a five-year maximum for a charge of misconduct in office because there's some charges of misconduct that are pretty bad for some of these lawmakers. That seems a little light. But in this situation, yeah, no jail time needed. I think the shame <laughs> around this story is punishment enough in addition to a fine.
1: I agree. This gentleman has shamed himself enough by his own volition. (laughs) So that's all we have today. Brian, did you enjoy your first appearance on Felony Friday? I loved it. Awesome, awesome. So I'm going to wrap the show up now. Um, I want to thank my Felony Friday audience for listening. And if you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving a comment on the Lines of Liberty podcast using either iTunes or Stitcher depending on what you have, iPhone, Droid, you know, whatever floats your boats. Leave a comment there and you can really help us out by subscribing. That gives us an idea of if you like the show or not. So please look into that. Also, you'll get our the rest of our great content. I know, Brian, earlier this week, we ran a show on Monday, our GOP debate reaction show, which Brian hosted, which was awesome. So you would have that in your feed if you were subscribed. So go ahead and subscribe. Now, in order to help us reach more people, you can also follow the Lines of Liberty on Facebook and Twitter, and you can share all of our shows and our articles with uh, your friends. And if you have a bunch of Twitter followers, you can share with all your followers and help us grow the show. Please don't keep the Lines of Liberty yourself, guys. If you like the show, tell somebody about it. Also, you can share your thoughts on the show with me. You can send me an email, FelonyFriday at After last week's show with John Ziegler, I've received a bunch of emails, a lot of feedback, and I really appreciate it. And I'd like that to continue. So please, guys, shoot me an email. Let me know what you think. And also, you can connect with other like-minded liberty lovers by joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Now, you can do this. It's pretty simple. All you're going to do is go on the Facebook and you type in Lions of Liberty Forum up in the search bar. The Lions of Liberty Forum will pop up and uh, say join, and we'll approve you within probably about 30 seconds. If we don't, don't take it personally. You can check out all the past Felony Friday shows at lionsofliberty.com slash Felony Friday. You can check out all of our podcasts. Like I said, we have three shows a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. As always, guys, thank you for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of Liberty burning.